Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's Message of the Week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. Good morning. Is anyone doing a read through of Isaiah like Adam suggested? One first? <laughs> yes, two. Good. Okay. Um, if you're doing a reading, you're probably somewhere around, I don't know, chapter 15 to 20 in that sort of area. You've got some really good bits coming up. Isaiah walks around naked for three years. Don't know if you missed that bit. Um, and then the watchman shouts, Babylon has fallen, Babylon has fallen. Some really good bits. And then you've got these great bits like, oh, how, how wonderful and marvelous are all your deeds, oh Lord. And then, and then you reach chapter 28. And for about six chapters, Isaiah goes, woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to all of you. And we are in chapter 28 this morning. (laughs) Thank you, Adam. (laughs) Are you excited? (laughs) For some context, Israel, the northern kingdom, um, was destroyed Um, So this is set in about the the 7th century BC, and when it was written, maybe you might think it was written earlier prophetically, or maybe written later looking back, or it might have been been written in that time, it's up for debate, but um, the events relate to this period when, roughly when Josiah was coming to the throne in Judah, um, 100 years earlier, Israel's been wiped off the map, they've been carried away by Assyria. Assyria since then has pretty much been wiped out. So the two big powers around them are Babylon to the north, Egypt to the south. And in this time period, um, lots of people in Judah and Jerusalem are saying, let's, let's put our trust in Egypt. Look how many horses they've got. They'll save us. And so um, Isaiah is really talking into that context. Um, so... The the passage this morning, you'll recognize even in this kind of quite woeful passage, there is still still hope. Just go back to the the title for me, Sam. So Cornerstone, looking at Cornerstone, there's still hope being um, injected into this message of woe. And just because um, Isaiah is quite dense and difficult to latch on to what's being said, um, I've got the, the structure of the passage just in kind of three main sections, just so you can find some points to hold on to as we go through it. So the first section is looking back on the downfall of Ephraim. And when you see Ephraim, you should just read it as Israel, the northern kingdom. Ephraim was the, the biggest tribe of Israel. Um, and so that kind of represents, represents them. And even in that, there's a message of God's faithfulness through it. And then you have kind of the main bit of what actually God wants to say to Judah. And then at the end, you've got this this parable. And so we'll look at that a bit later. Don't let the tenses throw you off in this. In English, we we, um, rely on kind of the past tense, present tense, future tense to make sense of what's going on. And a lot of it, the tenses don't really help you. So um, I'll try and I'll give a bit of commentary as we read through it to to let you know what, what it's all about. Okay, let's read. Woe to that wreath 
when you think wreath, it's like a crown. What is this crown? It's the pride of Ephraim's drunkards. The fading flower is glorious beauty. This is not a crown which is decorated with beautiful, wonderful flowers and everything. It's withered, wilted decorations. Where is this crown? It's set on the head of a fertile valley. That city, the pride of those laid low by wine. Remember, this is looking back at Israel. They're obviously all just drunk all the time. <laughs> See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm, a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. And when you read this vocabulary, you should be thinking about the Noah story. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. That's a crown. He's going to smash it on the floor. That wreath. The pride of Ephraim's drunkards will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower is glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley will be like figs ripe before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. In that day, when it says in that day, it's kind of a, a code in the prophets for the day of the Lord when the righteous will be vindicated and redeemed and the wicked will be punished. So in that day, which has already happened for Israel, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown and a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment. And he will be a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. There we go. And then it jumps back into the kind of the judgment bit. So <laughs> these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing their visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit. There is not a spot without filth. Who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? By saying, in that kingdom where everyone is drunk, who could I teach? The children weaned from their milk, just taken from the breast? Or it is, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. Very well then. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. So God is using the Assyrians, these enemies who speak a different language altogether, to deliver his message to Israel. To whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. And as they go, they'll fall backwards, they'll be injured, ensnared, and captured. Now he pivots. This is God's actual word to Judah. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. Can you feel it dripping with sarcasm and parody here? 
with an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge, and a falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie. Water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you'll be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. Even the understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on. The blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now, stop your mocking, or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. This is now that parable about the farmer. So listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. This is the moment where if you were a 7th century BC, Middle Eastern. This is pure comedy gold. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is the wheel of a cart rolled over cumin. Can you imagine? Caraway is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. The wheels of a threshing cart may be rolled over it but one does not use horses to grind grain. All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? There's these three strands. We've got Israel's failure looking back into the past. There were none left who listened to God, and look what happened to them. You've got this parable at the end which said, God instructs the farmers. They know what to do. He set out the way the world works. He gives wisdom to them. And he will give wisdom to you is the implication. And so in the middle, we have this message. Why are you scoffing? Why are you repeating the mistakes of the past? Why do you not listen to God's wisdom for you now? And this is an eternal invitation. This is not just for them. God has laid a foundation in Zion. God is laying a foundation in Zion. God will lay again that foundation in Zion. Zion 
it can refer to Jerusalem, it often does in the Bible, but specifically within Jerusalem, Zion is the hill where the temple was built. So the foundation of the temple is this, is this stone that, that God's laid there, the, the cornerstone. It's the first stone for, that can then be built on top of into this, into this temple. So really the message can be boiled down to, are you going to put your trust in these foreign nations in Egypt who you think are going to save you? Or are you going to put your trust in God? Where is your foundation? Are you going to build on God or something else? And let's be clear that these other nations, Egypt and Babylon, they actually weren't evil. Often in the, in the Bible, they're used as instruments of God's justice. And so they are portrayed as Israel's enemy often. But you can think back to God's promises in Genesis. Abraham and his entire family of descendants, they were supposed to bless the nations. All the nations were going to be blessed through Abraham and his family. But these, these other nations weren't supposed to ever be the enemies of Israel. These are good nations, and God is using them to deliver his justice. But when something that is good becomes something that is um, relied on, when it becomes more important than God, when it becomes before God, when they choose it over God, or reject God in order to put their trust in this other thing, that's when you know, God has a problem with that. Uh, there's a Tim Keller quote here that I've got, which says, idolatry happens when we take good things and make them ultimate things. When we turn a good thing and turn it into a God thing. One of our core um, values at Hope is God first. And that is the, the value that they have violated by putting their trust in other nations. I um, have spoken a few times about my career as I've moved from teaching into software development. I was incredibly blessed by God by that move that I managed to get a job with no qualifications, no experience, and um, God was, was so good to me in that. And then um, two years later, I actually got another job, which just was exact, perfectly God's provision. It was incredible. Couldn't quite believe that God had done it. And, and took that job. It was a big pay increase. It was great. It was really felt like I was um, being blessed by God. And very recently, I got offered another job, which looked like the same situation. This job had come up. It was a big pay increase. It was it was great. But as as we um, we prayed on it and reflected on it, we went, this this looks the same as those other situations. But God really wasn't in in it this time. And so um, so we turned that job down. But is strikes me that the foundation of trusting in something else often looks very similar to trusting in God. It can be one thing that, in fact, even for, for one person, for another person, they might be doing the same thing, but one person might be following God and the other person might be doing completely the opposite. So how do we know what it means to build on God's foundation? Um, it's not that easy. <laughs> but, but what it boils down to, it seems, is 
trying to take something that God wants to give us by our own strength. God wants to give us good things. He wants to bless us. If you look at every Bible character from Adam and Eve, he wanted to teach them wisdom, and yet they took it to themselves. Abraham, he wanted to give them a child, and yet they took it for themselves. And pretty much every character who you see throughout the Bible then has that same test of God says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you all these things, and then they get impatient and they try and take it for themselves. God first is a core principle. So God says, I'm laying a cornerstone, a foundation in Zion. And a cornerstone is not just an architectural thing. The first time the word cornerstone appears in the Bible is actually in the book of Exodus, when, um, when God's giving the instructions for how to build the temple. And it says the altar has four cornerstones, and each cornerstone you're going to put a horn on it. So when this, even the word cornerstone carries with it this kind of temple imagery. But this is the start of a new temple, God says. It's actually the same cornerstone he laid when he built the foundations of the world. It's been the same since the start, and it is God himself. In Isaiah chapter 8, God says, I myself am the stone, and if you don't, kind of draw yourself to it, you're going to stumble over it. You'll become, I will become a stumbling block to anyone that doesn't choose to build on this foundation. Psalm 118 says, the stone which was rejected has become the cornerstone. And you tie in these references to cornerstone, you kind of pull on these threads, um, you, you bring this kind of image of, okay, there's, there's God's foundation and there's this other foundation if I kind of walk around and just pretend it's not there, you're going to trip over it, you're going to stumble, you're going to fall. And this is what God was doing in the Old Testament, and the invitation was there to come and build on God's foundation. And then it became truer than ever when Jesus came. And suddenly God himself was the foundation he was the stone that was laid. And then when the builders rejected that stone, it became the cornerstone. And it, um, Peter actually brings this all together really nicely. This is not really my ideas. Um, one Peter. And it'll be very familiar because Adam uh, used this passage about two, three weeks ago. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, Precious is the word that was described the cornerstone again in Isaiah 28. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a house of the spirit, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it's saying that there is a new temple, and it's being built, and it's a temple of the spirit, and you all are the, are the living stones of that temple. For in scripture, it says, Isaiah 28, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, 
and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Isaiah 8, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that causes that makes them fall. So this is the invitation. Are you going to build on God's foundation? Make yourself into a living stone, which is part of that temple? Or are you going to act like it's not there? In which case, you will trip over it. If you, if you don't build on it, you're going to trip over it. And the bar is so low to be able to add yourself onto that temple. You might be the bumpiest, lumpiest rock, and you can put yourself into this building. It's so low, in fact, you don't have to go under it. Because all you have to have in order to be able to build onto this temple is nothing. Children can get through easily. Those who are lying on the floor because they are in pain, lost, have nothing, can get in easily. It's only those people that hold themselves up proud that can't actually get in. The bar for getting into the temple is so low. But once you're in, and you are this bumpy, lumpy rock, if you stay that way, no one can build on top of you. The temple's going to be ugly. The bar for discipleship and formation and ongoing transformation is actually really high. And it's hard work and it's often painful to let God chip away at those bumps and lumps that are on you, on your rock. And he'll fill in those holes where, where you need gaps filled in. But it requires you to completely open yourself to him. And so the bar for entry, for salvation, to add yourself into this living temple is low. But the bar for salvation, for discipleship and ongoing transformation and formation is high. And that's grace, that we can come in um, and it's easy. But also... Be aware that once you're in, the, uh, the requirements are not to keep on building. So maybe you know what you need to do in order to either come into the building or to start chipping off those lumps and let God do his work. If you're not sure, then I suggest one thing that we can do is to, like King Josiah, in the time when Isaiah was preaching this, he rediscovered the Torah, which has been lost. He rediscovered the law. He rediscovered a love for scripture. And the whole nation celebrated, yes, let's follow all of God's laws. Maybe that's something that, that you can commit yourself to. Um, and as we commit ourselves to righteousness and purity and ongoing transformation and spiritual formation, we can become more Christ-like. This temple will become beautiful. It will become something that people will see from far off and want to come and join, and they will run to it and join themselves onto it as well. Um, 
I just want you to just take a moment to think what you need to do, whether you need to join the building, whether you need to um, commit to some kind of ongoing transformation. Um, we're going to sing again in, in just a minute. I'm going to give Sandra back her stand, which I stole. And, um, and as part of this response, just, just work out what that's going to be for you. What do you how are you going to continue to grow in the kingdom? What do you need to do? What lumps need to be chipped off you? Or where do you need to let God fill in a hole in your heart?